everyone. All right. Well, we are uh, getting back into the Old Testament this morning. I'm really excited to jump back into an in-depth study of the Old Testament. It's been about, I think, two years since we actually did a, a, a kind of verse-by-verse study through a book of the Old Testament. And even then, it was only a short four-week study of the book of Esther. I mean, don't get me wrong, Esther is one of my favorite books that we studied through together. In, in many ways, uh, Esther kind of was a prelude to what, what makes up the modern Hollywood blockbuster today, right? There was a strong female lead. You had a, a clueless king, a kind of underdog, defiant man standing up to the man. There was action, intrigue, plot twist, gut-wrenching suspense. And then at the end of the book, there's this great reversal, and the book ends with this huge festival, this huge party that's called Purim, something that the, that the Jewish people today still celebrate. So Esther was a fantastic book. The Old Testament, I just love it. Now, if you are someone who basically just spends all their time in the New Testament, or kind of maybe, maybe avoid the Old Testament, you're worried about all the names, and just, it doesn't seem to fit, and it, it seems irrelevant to your life, let me put you at ease. The Old Testament is, in some ways, often more riveting and more relevant to our lives than even the New Testament. And that's because the majority of the Old Testament is comprised of what's called narrative, like stories. Like, who, who likes a good story? I like a good story. Stories, they just, they pull us in, right? They get us engaged. We see ourselves in stories, and we learn about ourselves from stories. And so stories have this way of communicating truth unlike anything else, right? Stories... They, they don't just tell us to trust the Lord, as true as that might be, right? You'll read that command in the New Testament. It shows us what that trust looks like. Who here hasn't felt the sweat on their brow when Esther walks in the court of Artaxerxes, un- unwelcomed, unannounced, risking death, that she might plead for mercy, Right? stories don't just tell us to be confident in God's purposes, right? The New Testament tells us those things. It shows us in spectacular ways. Like when David steps on the battlefield to face down Goliath. Stories don't just give us propositions, right? As helpful as those are, they give us illustrations. Truth not in the abstract or hope in the ethereal, but truth lived out in the trenches of life and what hope looks like that's grasped onto in the midst of hard circumstances. That's what I love about stories, right? They do that for us. And the, the better, the, even the best thing about Old Testament stories is that they all tell us about the one story that is the greatest story, and that is God's redemption through his son, Jesus Christ, whether it's the Hebrews, right, the Hebrew slaves waiting in bated breath as the death angel passes over and the only thing that's going to help them get through the night is what? The blood of a lamb that's covering them. I mean, who would have known? Little did they know that their tense-filled, terror-filled night was pointing forward to the experience of all humanity that sits under a death sentence with the death angel ready to pronounce judgment only unless the blood of another lamb covers us without which we can't get through the night. Or when David steps onto the battlefield to face down the giant while all of Israel standing on the side, totally full of fear, completely helpless and hopeless in the face of an enemy they cannot hope to overcome and conquer. And here's this little guy 
well, maybe a little bit, little, here's this little guy. With nothing but zeal for God's name and trust in the confidence or confidence in, in God's purposes for Israel, he wins a miraculous victory. And because of David's victory, all the people of Israel benefit and reap the rewards, even though they didn't do anything to contribute in taking down Goliath. I mean, what is that? That's the gospel. That one day a king would stand on a battlefield and face an enemy that none of us can conquer or overcome. And because of his victory, we benefit from it all, even though none of us did a single thing to earn it. That's the gospel. And, and, and as the Old Testament keeps telling us these stories and showing it to us, it keeps saying, look what God has done. Look what he is doing. Look what he will do. And in asking us and showing us that, it continues to ask the question, why would you ever trust? Why would you ever love? Why would you desire another than this king? Isn't that why we like stories? Because that's the stories, they, they make us feel truth, right? I mean, you ask my wife, she doesn't like holding my hand when we watch tense movies because I get it. I'm like squeezing her hand. I'm into it. And, and that's my personality type. But friends, can I say, and I think this is what's good about our particular culture, we recognize that unless you feel truth, you really can't know it. At least not in the fullest, robust, biblical sense of, of truth with wisdom. Unless you feel it, you can't know it. And unless you know it that way, you will not have the spiritual resources to live the life that God intends his people to live. And that's why the Bible includes both amazing stories and profound teaching. Profound propositions, right? We, we need both proposition and illustration. And so... Uh, starting next week at our reading service, and then through probably mid-April, we, we're going to be studying 2 Samuel. Now, the reason we're starting in 2 Samuel, it's not random. It's just because when I first got here, I taught through 1 Samuel eight years ago. And so I kind of figured sooner or later i got to get finished the book. So, but for those of you who weren't here, what I want to do this morning is give a, in the next probably 30 minutes, an overview of what 1 Samuel is about. Right? What story does 1 Samuel 12 uh, what, what, first, what story 1 Samuel tells us? That being said, I want to encourage you because 1 Samuel probably has the stories we like, one of the most popular and favorite stories of the Bible. So this week, it'll take you 90 minutes to read 1 Samuel, right? Cover to cover, chapter 1 to chapter 31, take you 90 minutes to do it. So the question is, what story does 1 Samuel tell? And as you can see from the slide behind me, it's a story of faithfulness. Faithfulness in character, in life, in leadership. A story of faithfulness. So that's what we're going to look at. And uh, when we do um, look at this story, we're going to realize that both First and Second Samuel tell us another story about human nature that is as old as both these books are themselves. And that is this, whether you're a Christian or not, regular churchgoer or not, we are all longing for someone to make this world right. For someone to bring hope and help into our worlds. Every one of us senses it, and, and probably because of social media and constant 24-hour news feeds, we feel it even more that something's terribly wrong with the world, and we all are longing for someone somehow to make it right. That someone would lead humanity out of darkness. Now, 
This is not just a, a biblical theme. Friends, you just look at history, you look at literature, and you see this exact story everywhere, right? So whether it's King Kamehameha in the Hawaiian Islands or uh, King Arthur in England or Peter the Great in Russia, Emperor Meiji in Japan or uh, King Aragorn from Middle Earth, all these stories longing for salvation. And the way 1 Samuel is going to tell this story is by following the life arc of three individuals, Samuel the prophet, Saul the king, and David the man. And so that's how we're going to look at this book. It's divided pretty evenly between their lives. So if you have a Bible, and if you haven't already opened the First Samuel, find your way to First Samuel. If you need to use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find it on page 211. Page 211, First Samuel. Let's take a look at the first kind of story in the book, and that's the story of Samuel the prophet. Now Samuel is a man of God's word. He is the last of the judges of Israel, and the book of Acts tells us he was the first of the prophets. Now, we are introduced to Samuel by way of his mother, Hannah, in chapter 1. Hannah was a, a childless woman who, in simple but profound faith, cries out to God that God would be so merciful and grant her a, a, a child so that she might dedicate him back to the Lord. Before the chapter ends... We see that God answers this prayer. After all, he is the God who hears, which is why they named the boy Samuel, which means God hears. In chapter 2, we see the early and striking contrast between Samuel and the other young priests at the tabernacle. And it's only fitting that Samuel receives his famous calling in chapter 3. So let me read chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was laying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was laying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and Samuel said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call, lay down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Verse 8. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the young man. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lay down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Verse 10 of this chapter is illustrative of Samuel's whole life. He was attentive to the voice of God. He was eager to hear the word of the Lord. He was willing to obey and deliver even the difficult message. In a time when the priests were corrupt and the religious system itself was collapsing, here we have a young man obedient to God's word. And as a result, his own words were powerful and regarded throughout all of Israel. Look that down at verse 19 and 20. And Samuel grew... And the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. 
I can't think of a better example of a righteous life, of righteous leadership than Samuel. He was quick to hear the word of the Lord. He was willing to obey the word of the Lord. And because of this, he held authority and influence in the land. Friends, that's not a coincidence. Young men, young women, if you want to have a life of authority and influence, be like Samuel. Be quick to hear the word of the Lord. Be quick to obey the word of the Lord, even if it's difficult. And you don't have to be a young man or a woman for that. If any of you want to be a person of influence and authority, be like Samuel. Be quick to hear God's word and quicker to respond. There is a pattern here. We can't unpack it, but I want you to see it again in chapter 3, verse 21. And then kind of forget the chapter divisions. Roll right into chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to this. It's so revealing. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. And listen to this phrase after the conjunction 4. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh. And how did he reveal himself? By the word of the Lord. Do you want to get to know the Lord? Well, here we have the clue. You get to know the Lord by the word of the Lord. And roll right into chapter 4. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. See the pattern there. The word of God, the, 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 the person of God was revealed through the word of God. And when Samuel heard and obeyed, his words held authority and influence. And friends, at no better time in Israel, in their life, did a leader like this arise when things were falling apart. Literally in chapters 3, 4, and 5, we see the collapsing of the religious, the political, and the social life of all Israel. Uh, exemplified in the fact that they began to treat the ark of God like it was some kind of good luck medallion. And they believe that forms of religion can substitute for God's real presence and power in their lives. Friends, a mistake that is still too common today. Do not mistake forms of religion as the real presence of power of God in your life. It is too easy to do when we live in a culture like Francis Schaeffer says, we live in a Christ-haunted culture. Where you can't get away from the influence of Christ even if you may not acknowledge him. It is easy to mistake just the forms of his real presence and power in your life. The high priest Eli, we see, and his two wicked sons are judge, and they all three die in the same day, and the ark of God is captured by Israel's enemies. Chapter 6 shows the ark coming back to Israel after the Philistines suffer greatly at the hands of God for their blasphemy, and then the men of Beth Shemesh learn a tragic lesson and on their words, on the lips of their own mouths, they, they ask a redemptive question that's so poignant. Let's go to chapter 6, verse 20. After God's judgment comes upon them, the men of Beth Shemesh says, we, we have to send this ark away because, look at 620, who is able to stand before the Lord? Asking the most perennial of questions, who can stand before such a holy God? And the conclusion is none of us. This holy God. We'll get back to that in a little bit. But I always love it when gospel truths are on the lips of the people who oppose the gospel itself. In chapter 7 of 1 Samuel, Samuel leads the entire nation of Israel in genuine repentance and delivers them from the enemies. And then in like Moses-like fashion, leads them and challenges Israel by saying this. It's on the screens behind me. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart... Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. You would think at that point that the people of Israel would be all in with God. 
but unfortunately they are more like us than we care to admit. And they then ask immediately after this great deliverance of God, they reject God's rule and they ask for a human king. And notice because they want to be like the nations around them. Look at chapter 8, starting in verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And again we read, Samuel was obedient. Friends, what makes Samuel such a formidable example is that he always obeyed the Lord. Even when it might have seemed counterintuitive or even foolish, like we see in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when the Lord tells Samuel, ignore all these strapping, large, young men of Jesse. That none of them are the ones that I choose, but anoint the smallest and the youngest of all these boys, a boy named David. Samuel's life, epitomizes what Samuel says to Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22. Some of you may be familiar with this verse. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice, forms of religion? Right? The implication is no, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Samuel's life and his ministry was a leadership of the word of God, the, the hearing, the speaking, the teaching, the, the, the living by God's word. Samuel's life and ministry was a ministry and life of prayer and engaging God on behalf of others. Some of Samuel's last words to the people of God then, over 3,000 years ago, are just as relevant to our lives today Kyle read them earlier to you. Let me read them to you again if you did not hear it. If you hear nothing else, hear this. 1 Samuel 12, starting in verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people. For his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. What a sober warning. What a gracious and encouraging reminder. What a hopeful testimony that even though we do the wrong thing and we sin against the Lord and commit wickedness, he says, I will forgive you. If you just come back to me, I'll consider it all taken care of. But serve me. Don't take me so lightly. Because if you do, then both you and your king will be swept away. What a faithful and fruitful life Samuel lived. What a fruitful leadership. What godly character. What a promising start for Israel here at the beginning of their monarchy. So where does it go from here? Well, we have another character. Another life, only this time not as hopeful. Although the book is named for Samuel the prophet, really the book is about Saul the king. 
It records as much about Saul's life as it does Samuel the prophet. Saul is the man who's picked to be the king over Israel, the king that they desperately wanted in place of God. And at first, things look pretty good, right? This new king is head and shoulders above the competition, literally head and shoulders above the competition. There it is in 1 Samuel 9, 2. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a, a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. And in chapters 9 and 10, he comes off as a modest, humble, a winner of a king. But then in just a few chapters, things begin to spiral out of control. And starting chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, up until the rest of the book, it just gets, goes from bad to worse. In chapter 13, uh, Saul presumptuously takes on the role of a priest. In chapter 14, Saul presumptuously makes these vows and promises that, that put Israel in danger. And then finally in chapter 15, the wheels come completely off as Saul's uh, presumption leads to flat-out disobedience to the word of God. But if you read the text, and at least in those early chapters, Saul is the kind of man that any one of us, if he were tempted to come into this church and said, I should be the senior pastor, you would say, yes, let's have him be the senior pastor. He's a self-made, self-assured, self-confident man. Everything we desire in people today. But that's exactly the problem if you know the narrative. Right? It is clear by the description, Saul is an impressive guy. And to be clear, there's nothing wrong with being impressive. Right? That's, that's not the problem. The po problem is, Saul is really impressive to himself as well. And it all goes sideways. He forgot that, that, yes, he was the king of Israel, but he did not get to do things as he desired. He was merely the steward, the manager. He acted on God's behalf, who is the true king. He didn't have the right to command or dictate as he saw fit. He was just the steward. Friends, I wonder if you see a little of yourself in Saul in this regard. Have you forgotten that you're not the true king or queen of your life? Have you begun to think that these are my kids? This is my time. This is my career. This is my retirement. These are my finances to do with as I please, dictate, and desire. And you've forgotten that everything is God's. And you're merely his steward. If so, the life of Saul is a cautionary tale to you this morning. That you're merely someone who has the privilege and honor to represent the true king in the sphere, in your, in your little kingdom. But you're not the queen. You're not the king. You're merely the steward. The remainder of the count of Saul and his life shows the inevitable decline of a life motivated by self, right? It's full of disobedience to God's command and blame shifting. We see that in chapter 15. By the time we get to chapter 16, Paul's life is full of fear. By the time we get to chapter 18, envy is the filter by which he sees the world. And then it, it almost climaxes in chapter 22 as Saul murders the priests of God. And you think it can't get worse than this until you get to chapter 28. And Paul or Saul starts speaking to a necromancer, the witch of Endor, to speak to the dead. Friends, if, if sin's radical transformation can be seen in anything in Saul's life, as horrible as his murder was of the priests and speaking to the dead, it was the fact that over 16 times in 1 Samuel he tries to kill David, the man who God was going to replace him with. 
What a sad tale. Started off so great, so amazing, and to end up so horribly. So that, that's reason one Saul kind of fell from grace. He forgot who the true king was. But here's the, the second one. And I'm not sure which one causes the other. So you may not be tempted. You know, maybe you are guilty of the first. As I said, we can forget and believe we are the true king or queen of our lives. But maybe the second one, the second reason Saul falls from grace is he forgot who he was supposed to truly fear. Notice with me in chapter 15. So the wheels are coming off. Of course, it's only midway through his reign. Saul reigned, by the way, for 40 years. So this is midway through. It's clear that God is replacing him, but, and God has judged him. And listen to Saul in chapter 15 speaking to Samuel. I'm going to read verse 24 and 30 and connect these threads. Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned because I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people. And I obeyed their voice. Jump down to verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord, your God. Notice the change in the pronoun. It's no longer uh, our God, it's your God. What's going on here? Saul clearly is judged. He, he admits his sin. He admits he blew it against God. He disobeyed God. He disobeyed Samuel. And what is his concern? But return with me so I look good in front of everybody. I don't want to look like a fool. I don't want to look like what I actually am. Friends, fear of man, the desire to be approved in other people's eyes, to be gauging your worth and value more in the eyes of other people than in the Lord God who loves you, that is cancerous to any life, leadership, or character you might have. Proverbs 29 says the fear of man is a snare. It catches you and traps you. But trust in the Lord keeps you safe. Oh, friends, there are thousands of ways we could tease that out. But let me ask you, do you fear man more than you fear God? Are you more concerned what others think of you, what others say about you, whether or not you are accepted and approved by them? Or do you know that you stand before an audience of one and one alone? And it's to him you must be approved. Oh, that will save you so much heartache in life. Well, there's one final story in 1 Samuel. And it really goes through the end of, all the way through the end of our upcoming study of 2 Samuel. And that's the story of David. If Saul was an independent man who feared men, David was a dependent man who feared God. See, the great thing is, David is everything Saul isn't. He's small. He's unimpressive. He's faithful. And he is concerned about the glory of God. And the account of David's confrontation between he and Goliath uh, typifies and sets the trajectory of his entire life and legacy. Let, let me take you to it. 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 45. Okay, 1 Samuel 17, verse 45. Now think about this. This is David roughly probably between 16 and 18 years old. Standing before, I believe it's nine feet, two inches tall, covered in the highest technology of the day. By the way, the description of Saul in 1 Samuel 17 is the most detailed description of military armament we have in the entire Bible. Why do you think that is? Because the writer wants us to know what a horrible 
unconquerable enemy this was. And he had the latest technology of the day. And here comes this shepherd boy, verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with your sword and with a spear and with a javelin. Like as if any one of those wasn't enough, right? But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Wow. That would be like, see this little guy right here? Hey buddy, what's your name? What's your name? Alexander. Imagine Alexander saying that to Dwayne the Rock Johnson. That's what it would be like. But David had no fear. Why? Because he had confidence of what God was doing, not just in his life at all, but in what God was doing through the people of God. And as David's confidence in God's power is clearly seen in 1 Samuel 17, David's confidence in God's plan is clearly seen in 1 Samuel 24 and 26. Remember, those are the two scenes where he literally could have took Saul's life. Saul was, I love the Bibles, relieving himself, right, using the bathroom in the cave that David and his men happened to be hiding in. All he needed to do was plunge the knife right in his back, but he didn't. Because David knew that God was going to put him in the throne and he was not going to lift his finger to do it because he was confident in God's plan and his power. Friend, friends, read this book, 1 Samuel, over and over again and you, are, you can't help but see that David's life was consumed with God's plans, God's activities, God's purposes, God's promises, God's honor, God's glory. He was consumed with God. And friends... David had the right perspective. David's confidence is what the Bible calls faith. Understanding that all of life is about God, not yourself. That's the only difference between you and I and David. He was consumed. Just like Samuel was consumed to hear the word of the Lord and to speak it and do it. Just like Saul was consumed with himself. Friends, what are you consumed with? I can tell you, if you let me look at your calendar and your, your checkbook, <laughs> I could tell you what consumes you if you tell me what you do on your free time. I can tell you what consumes you. Not just what you say consumes you, but how you spend your life, your resources, your days, your free time. Unlike his predecessor, David always knew who the true king was, and David feared him more than any other man in his life. Well, there's much to be said about David. Uh, 2 Samuel, after all, is his story. We'll be looking and starting that next week. But if you've been paying attention, you probably figured it out. No, 2 Samuel is probably God's story as told through David's life, and you'd be absolutely correct. Uh, we'll be doing the reading service of 2 Samuel next week, but just we're just going to do chapters 1 through 10. And it's only going to take you 35 minutes to read it. So I encourage you, as a way to prepare yourself, read those chapters or read 1 Samuel. Come ready to hear the gripping drama that is the Old Testament. Friends, as we've looked at these three lives of Samuel, Saul, and David, 
we obviously can see strengths and weaknesses in each and every one of them. And no matter how much we may want to put them up on a pedestal, particularly Samuel or David, we realize that nobody escapes the effects of sin. In chapter 8, verse 3, we realize that Samuel himself, a powerful leader, a faithful prophet, lived with the painful truth that his sons did not walk in his ways. They perverted justice. They took bribes. Saul, who very well intended, quickly sabotaged his own life because of his self-confidence or his, and or his just disregard for the honor of God. Or David. The only person in Scripture described as a man after God's own heart, he himself succumbed to temptation and betrayed the God he so faithfully served. And we're going to see that tragedy unfold in the next couple of months here. The reality is, though, every one of us struggles with sin. And this certainly includes the biblical characters we read about. And since we all share this common struggle, we all share a common need. We need a king who can do more than just inspire us. We need a king who can actually lead us out of darkness. We, we need a king who, who can more than just kill the physical giants of the land. We need a king who can slay the rebellion in our own darkened hearts. We need a priest who will honor God above all others. We need a prophet who's willing to speak to us the truth when we want to hear it, but more importantly, when we don't. We want and need this kind of prophet, priest, and king. And all through 1 Samuel, it's pointing us to that reality that our hope can never be found in earthly prestige, in earthly power, in earthly kingdoms, however you conceive of it. Whether it's political, religious, corporate, personal, none of these things will actually deliver. They will all fail us. There is only one prophet, priest, and king we can look to, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the king we can emulate. He's the king we can follow. He's the one with the words that we can listen to and obey. It's his ministry that can actually bring us before this king that the Philistines and the men of Beth Shemesh said, how holy is this God? How can you stand before him? Well, here's how we stand before him, in the righteousness of Christ. That's what we need. That ultimately is the story of 1 Samuel. Really, that's the, ultimately the story of the entire, of, entirety of the Old Testament. We're going to begin 2 Samuel next week. And I guarantee you, look through this lens, you will see your story in that story as well. So I hope you are here when we begin that book next week. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and thank you that you didn't just give us commands and, and, and propositions as gracious as that would have been. But you gave us stories of men and women living this out. And more importantly, Lord, because all those stories end in failure, deficiency, aspiration, but never achieving. But, Lord, you did not let the story end there. You did more than give us propositions and stories. You gave us a Savior who fulfilled all these realities on our behalf. Father, I pray that every one of us here will see our story in light of your great story. That is your son, the true prophet, priest, and king. Father, help us to repent away from our idols that fill our hearts, from worshiping and bowing down before other kings, for looking to other things to mediate us between you and, and truth or whatever it is, and to just bow our knee and confess with our tongue that Christ is what we need. Thank you for this. In his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, 
visit us at www.ccclh.org.